Obadiah read the passage that's a continuation of what we talked about last week. Tonight, we're really going to just talk about one thing. Um, Our compatibility, your compatibility with that Jesus that we talked about last week that we'll look at again tonight. Your compatibility with him. That's what we're going to talk about. Let's pray before we do. Um, Jesus, what a great thing. What a, what, a, um, thinks, what a reality that we're grateful for that we don't come to talk about you uh, without being able to talk to you first. So many lectures we sit in, we talk about people. We can't talk to them. We can't talk to Abraham Lincoln. We can't talk to Martin Luther King Jr. But we can talk to you. We can ask for your help. We can ask you to come and open eyes and soften hearts. You can, we can ask you to surprise us tonight because our expectations are usually so low we weren't even expecting to hear from you. So would you do that, Jesus, because of who you are, because you love us, because we need it. We ask this in your name. Amen. I got to UGA in 1999, and when I got here, like compatibility, relational compatibility was a big deal. I think it's always been a big deal. People talked about it a lot. But now, in 2018, relational compatibility is a $3 billion industry. 15% of the adult U.S. population, 18 and above, uh, regularly uses a dating app, dating service, something like that. And you, you're the fastest growing demographic in America adopting this and starting to use it. 18 to 24-year-olds, in the past two years, your use of this stuff has tripled. Three times as great than a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, you know the deal. You've seen the commercials. We're talking about Match.com, eHarmony, Christian Mingle. If you like images, we're talking about Tinder. If you don't like images, we're talking about Farmers Only and just trying to get out of your head what the person you're talking to might look like or be like. And the weird thing is it's not just a fixation about dating anymore. Like this compatibility, it's not just a fixation in the dating realm. It's been fun talking to a lot of you freshmen because recently in the last few years, uh, UGA has started using some of this stuff in colleges everywhere to try to place you with your roommate. Um, Employers are starting to use compatibility tests and personality tests to see ahead of time if you'll fit with the company culture. Would you fit well with all the other people who are already Uh, working here. None of this stuff existed back when we were here. Uh, The only compatibility questions that you were asked is, are you a boy or are you a girl? And uh, you got put with, you know, someone obviously of the same gender, and they're like, go to Russell Hall, and here's this random person who has nothing in common with you, and it's complete Russian roulette. It either, like, you're so relieved because you have a functional relationship, or it's like apocalypse. But it's a big deal now. We put a lot of money into this We generally agree as a culture right now that compatibility is a key indicator of relational quality, longevity, whether it's going to work or not. Like, do I fit with this person? Are we a good match? Are we compatible? Um, But I don't even know if we know what compatibility means. There's a couple of different routes. It's not so easy to define. When we talk about being compatible with another person, do we mean that this person completes me? 
Um, like they check off all my boxes. Everything I could ever want in a person, you know, this girl is that. Or you're everything I ever wanted in a guy or a roommate or an employee. Is that what we mean? That compatibility means you complete me? Uh, maybe it means that you compliment me or you compensate me. So, uh, you know, a lot of times people are trying to figure out, should we get married? You're like, you know, is my future wife strong where I'm weak? Am I strong where she's weak? Do we complement each other? She tends to get stuck in this area, but I kind of still have mobility there, and I tend to get stuck or all wrapped up in this stuff, but she's really strong in that. We kind of pull each other out of our ruts. Does that what, is that what compatibility means? We, complete each, or we compensate for each other's weaknesses. It's hard to define, and that's part of the problem. This part isn't hard to see, though. When I think about compatibility and when you think about it, regardless of the realm, I bet that we're all thinking of what we want from the other person, right? Like we go to dream mode and it's like, if I could custom design a human being, what would they be like? That's what I think about. I think that's what you think about when we talk about compatibility. Not necessarily what do I need this other person to be? What do I need in a roommate? What do I need in a significant other? What do I need in a spouse? What do I need in a company? In other words, we've made compatibility just like about everything else in our lives all about ourselves. And that's a problem. And so uh, I, think that, I think it's safe to say when we talk about stuff like finding the perfect match or fitting with somebody, uh, we're probably not thinking about all of our quirks and my baggage and our bad breath and our weird like personality dysfunctions that everyone knows are weird but we're kind of hoping they didn't notice and our habits and our messiness when we think of compatibility I'm not thinking who would be a good who would be a well-suited fit for that Ben I'm just thinking about who do I want to be a good uh, who do I want um, for myself but true compatibility if it's anywhere in the realm of true compatibility it has to include two people who are a good fit for each other, right? There has to be a meshing there. That's what the word means. And so, if you want to find true compatibility, don't you have to be brutally honest about who the other person actually is and who you actually are? Isn't that a requirement, a base requirement to find a perfect match? No more pretending, no posturing, no... This is who I want you to believe that I am. All those things get worn off, but who I actually am and who they actually are, which means we have to intimately know ourselves and we have to intimately know the other person to some extent. If we want to know ahead of time, that will be a good match. And here's why I'm talking about this, folks. The reason why is I think this is a helpful way to think about what Paul is doing in the early part of this letter. He's, he's done it before, we just haven't drawn attention to it, and he's going to keep doing it through the letter. He does it in his other letters. He's doing this two-step dance between who Jesus is, who he actually is, not who we reduce him to be, not what the stereotypes say he is, not what the crowd say he is, but who he says he is, and the other side of that two-step dance is who we actually are, who you actually are, objectively. Not so-and-so's opinion of you, not your opinion of you, 
not our overinflated view of ourselves. But that's the dance Paul is doing. And he goes back and forth. Last week, obvious, right? This beautiful, famous hymn about Jesus, of who Jesus is. Seeable, sufficient, supreme, sovereign. And now this passage that Obadiah read earlier, he's shifting back to who we actually are. He's talking about compatibility And he's saying, and I I think in a sense, we'll look down at the the verses in just a second, but I think he's saying if you want the gospel, which we'll define in a second, if you want what Christianity is all about, if you want what the Bible is all about to gain traction in your life and grab hold of your heart and land in your head, then what you're going to have to do is see Jesus as he is and see you for who you are. Or to put it a better way, to see all of who Jesus is and all of who you are not. That's the specific recipe to find compatibility and to see uh, what I'm talking about. Here are the obstacles real quick before we talk about who he is, who we are. The obstacles to enjoying and noticing and finding this perfect match are that many of us think we're compatible with God, to use that terminology. We think we fit with him because we have a misunderstanding of who he is. We, like I grew up a good chunk of my life, not because of anyone else's fault, my own fault, I thought God's chief quality was that he was nice. That he kind of like with a wink and a nod, he's like a cool guy. He's like, you know what? I, I know what happened over here, but that's not the real you. You're like, let's just forget about that and move on. He's nice. That's not really, that's never a quality that he uses to describe himself or anybody else in scripture. But it's a misunderstanding we have about who he is that makes us think we're cool. We click, we fit. We're a great match, we're a great team, us and God. Or we think we're compatible with him because we misunderstand ourselves. Uh, We treat our sin flippantly. We toy around with it, we play around with it. We don't take it seriously. We don't take what we've done, what we've not done seriously. Uh, You might hear or say or think the phrase, uh, man, this, this gospel thing is great. God loves to forgive and I love to sin. That's what I mean by this flippancy. Um, This, hey, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And that's why we misunderstand compatibility and without even thinking, without even engaging, without even probing the depths of our heart or actually looking at who he actually is, we just rush in the room and think we're compatible. Sometimes it's the other way around. We don't think we're compatible because we misunderstand him. We think he's prudish. We think God is moralistic. We think God is pharisaical. That he is more concerned with your behavior and your infractions than he is anything else in your life. That's really the sticking point for him and he can't get past that. And so I can't get past that and I can't approach him. We misunderstand what he's really like and so we think we're not compatible. Or because we don't understand ourselves. We think I'm generally a pretty good person. I I haven't made any of the really bad mistakes by age 19 or age 20 or 21. You know, the big bad boxes haven't been checked yet. I'm still good. And the antidote to this stuff, the cure to this stuff, if, you're say, if this is resonating with you at any level, what do you do about this? Uh, well, the solution is a deeper knowledge of self and a deeper knowledge of God. 
Because the diagnosis is you don't know yourself and you don't know God. John Calvin, first paragraph of his magnum opus, this book has literally changed the world, the Institutes of Christian Religion. Uh, He's like 20-something when he writes this thing. Overachiever makes me feel worthless. Um, But Calvin, first paragraph out of his mouth in this giant magnum opus, this giant theological work, he says, "Um, if you want to know God, you have to know yourself. And if you want to know yourself, you have to know God. Truly. There is no true knowledge of God apart from you knowing your need of him, your weakness, all that you're not. And there's also no true knowledge of self without knowing who God actually is. In other words, knowing God puts into perspective your view of yourself, your understanding of what you're actually like. And knowing yourself puts into perspective what God is actually like. It's a cycle. It's a vortex. It's pursuing the two things at the same time. For faith to grow at all, for your faith in Jesus to grow strong, you must brutally, you must Take brutally honest looks at who you are and brutally honest looks at who he is. And so let's do that really briefly. What's a brutally honest look at who Jesus is? I'm going to send you back to what we talked about last week. There's a podcast for that, but I'll briefly summarize it. Uh, Obadiah read part of it. Uh, this, This section right before here, he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which means the heir The firstborn son got everything. Jesus, the firstborn son, gets everything. It doesn't mean he was born. It doesn't mean he was created. But the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. He is the creator. The agent of creation. He's king over everything you do in the classroom. He's king over everything you do here. And everything in between. And so how is Jesus as a creator, a good creator, compatible with us as a creature? His His infinite strength is perfectly compatible with our limited, finite, creaturely weakness. We are dependent by design, not because you're messed up and you're not like everyone else. You're weak and you're limited by design because you were made to depend upon your maker. There was an umbilical cord still attached between his image bearers and him. We are made to be dependent. Jesus's infinite strength and power is a perfect match for our weakness His strength, his endurance is a perfect match for our fragility. Have you realized yet that life is fragile? Have you realized yet that oftentimes your plans don't go the way you thought they would? Like some of us were joking the other day at lunch about just in the past year, all the the big things you thought would go a certain way and like boom, 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 none of them happened and something else happened. Well, here is one who doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. He is eternal, which means he is timeless, which means he knows all things at all times, which means he knows the end of your story before your story began. That, who he is in that way, his eternality is a perfect match for our finitude, for you being situated in a time and a place and not knowing a ton of stuff that we think would be really helpful to know. Jesus as creator is a perfect match for a body and a creation that are falling apart. You don't just need a gospel for your soul and for your heart. And Christianity never asserts that. Christianity is not this ethereal, spiritual thing for your soul. It's just as much for the seat you're sitting in. 
not just as much. Let me, let me alter that. It is also about the seat you're sitting in, also about the trees out there, also about the environment, also about the oceans, also about systemic evils and injustices that permeate every realm in our world. Jesus is a cosmic creator. He's a cosmic recreator and redeemer. Every piece that he made, he will remake and he will renew and he will take back from its vandalism and darkness. And that's a perfect match for what we need. Paul says in Romans 8, same guy, all of creation is groaning as in the pangs of childbirth for Jesus to come and fix what he has made. Well, Jesus isn't just compatible with you because he's a creator and we're creatures. He's compatible with you perfectly because he is a recreator or a redeemer, a rescuer, synonyms of each other. And we are sinners. If you have, uh, find this hard to believe, maybe, then look with me down at the passage. For us to be reconciled to God directly implies there was a time when or is a time now when you're not reconciled to God, which means none of us were born in a good relationship with God. All of us were born, all of us made our cameo debut in this world, in this life, in our story as someone directly opposed to him, someone who believed horrible things about him, people who delighted in evil and therefore became unreconciled from him. If Paul says that Jesus has reconciled us to God, it presumes that there was a time when we were not reconciled to him. If he presumes that, or if this passage says that Jesus is presenting his people holy and blameless before the Father, it means there was a time when you were not holy, not set apart as unique, as special, and you were blameworthy, and we were responsible, we were condemned, we were still, our name was on the bill for what we've done. And Jesus, in all of these ways, is perfectly compatible for these things because he's described throughout the Gospels, throughout the Bible, as a savior of sinners, as a rescuer of the weak, as one who wipes away the past and writes a new future. And it's crucial to see this because some of us are in a wrestling match of denial. We think that I, I, I can't conceive of me being compatible with this kind of a God if I'm honest about what's really going on, if I'm honest about what I'm, what's really going on about my sexual brokenness, about the doubts I carry around deep down when I think, I really don't believe this. I don't know if I believe this. We think if we come out of the closet with those things and own them and say the words that we think it makes it real and we think it makes us incompatible with him. And in one sense, it does. Because we were unreconciled, we were alienated, but in another sense, it qualifies you. It qualifies you for his grace. The way a broken leg qualifies you for admittance to the ER. And this is crucial to see because so many of us, Christian, non-Christian, are staying at arm's length from your God who has not just made you, but has come to remake you. And we have kept him at bay because we think we think he's coming to condemn us, not free us. Charles Spurgeon always said, the bigger your sin, the bigger your view of your own sin, the bigger your savior, and that's a good thing. Conversely, the smaller your sin, the smaller you think your problem is with God, 
The smaller your savior, the smaller your gratitude, the smaller your enjoyment of the gospel, the more you have to contribute all the effort to get excited about God, to get excited about Christianity. It always feels like you're pulling all the weight because there's really nothing for you to get excited about because there's nothing you really thought you got saved from. These things, again, like I've been saying over and over, make us feel incompatible with him. And this is my story and it's your story. And it's how I spend a good portion of my life and I fall back into it often of thinking that the very thing that should make me run to Jesus often keeps me far from him or at least hiding from him. You can be honest about who you are and honest about who God actually is because of this. The gospel that Paul describes here, when he says gospel, he's talking about the thing that makes it possible to own who you are while simultaneously owning who God is. You don't have to redefine yourself. I'm not that bad. You don't have to redefine God. He's nice. He doesn't care about my past. He's not holy. He's not righteous. He's not also a judge. You don't have to redefine either. You can deal with yourself as you are and you can deal with him as you are only because of the gospel. That's the glue that holds these two things together and makes that a possible enterprise. Otherwise, it breaks, uh, it breaks apart. And when Paul talks about the gospel, and here's where we'll define it, he's talking about a burst in history, real earth, time and space. There was an hour, a minute, a day, a month, a season, some weather that day, some people there. He's talking about a historical moment that Jesus broke the power of reigning, enslaving, addicting sin in your life, in all the lives of his people. And in that moment, accomplished your rescue. Ernest Hemingway in his book or his story, For Whom the Bell Tolls, makes this observation. He says, today is only one day in all the days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that will ever come can depend on what you do today. That quote's kind of true. Like we know some notable historical figures who have made courageous decisions or bad decisions and it's affected history. But Hemingway was not talking about Jesus when he said that. But there is nobody this comes more to life in and is more durably true than in Jesus Christ. This is, that was just one day amongst all of the other days that have ever been. But what happened, what he did that day with his power, with his authority, with his divinity, with his eternity, with his omnipotence, what he used himself for in all that he had, what he used himself for that day affected all the other days in history and for his people. Karl Barth's an old German theologian, significant theologian, has written a lot. He sa- uh, someone asked him one time, when were you saved? Thinking, let's hear your story, your testimony, and Bart responds without a beat. When was I saved? It happened one afternoon in 34 AD when Jesus died on the cross. That historical moment in time with all of its gravity and depth and profundity and power is transported to you and applied to you by the spirit of Jesus in space and in time. Some of you know the time. Many of you don't know the time. It's a little kid or it was a slow turning up of a dimmer switch. 
Some of you have not experienced this yet, and you're wondering, what relevance does something 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me and my story today? If you take the Bible on its terms, what it claims is that Jesus, through his Spirit, will take what he did in that moment on that day and bring it to you tonight, to you tonight, and apply all of its force, all of its power in your life like an atom bomb now. That gospel that says, for brutally broken sinners, there is a match made in heaven with a patient and gracious and holy and just redeemer. I know that this is true, and I know that Paul believed this is true, because Paul said late in life, not early, not when he'd you know, been a Christian a couple of years, but late in life, well after this letter was written to the Colossians, Paul writes this to a friend of his. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus my Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent of his. The saying that you've heard is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, Paul, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe for eternal life. That's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy Paul believed this. Paul saw and Paul held firm to this compatibility between who he actually was late in life as the foremost of sinners and this patient, gracious Jesus. And he says, this is worthy of your consideration. It's worthy of your reconsideration. It's worthy of your full acceptance. And for those of you in the room who do not remember the day when this change happened in you, or do remember the day, and you say, but my, my sight of this has grown dim. I feel incompatible with him again. I don't feel like we're on the same page. I don't feel like we fit. We don't mesh. I don't feel like we're a match made in heaven. Paul would say, your hope has shifted. He'd say it to the Colossians. He'd say it to us tonight. He says it in this passage. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul's solution to your losing sight of this Jesus isn't to beat you around and say, study your Bible more or get better at remembering this. Paul's solution to that problem is you've forgotten the great news that the state you're in right now, the weakness you feel right now, the track record you grieve right now That is why you need this Jesus right now. And that's why he is perfectly matched to who you need in a season of life just like this. I want to end with this story. Uh, It's not one of my stories. It's the story of uh, a guy named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Dallas. You've probably heard heard of him, many of you. Very big church. Very gifted preacher. And this story started going viral right around the time... um, Jesus opened my eyes, and so I was like always on the internet getting, you know, watching YouTube videos or blog posts or whatever, and I came across this, 
and it was kind of spreading around the country like wildfire. And, and Chandler is in a, in a sermon, and he's, he's recounting the story of a time when him and his buddies, while they were in college, were, um, you know, sitting in their chemistry class, whatever, like the four of them, and there's this older woman in the class, and she's like in her late 20s, and obviously they're like, okay, you know, one of these things is not like the others. And so they strike up a relationship with her and find out that she's got a few kids. She has come back to college kind of as a desperate attempt to put the pieces of her life back together and make ends meet. And so uh, they build this relationship with this woman. They start coming over to babysit her kids so that she can kind of, you know, go out and run errands and go shopping. And uh, they discover she's like having an extramarital affair with some married guy while this is happening. So they're like uh, helping her think through the wisdom calls and, and those situations in her life. They end up inviting her to church one Sunday because of one of Chandler's uh, roommates It was playing some song at the church. And so she goes. And they get there. The guy plays a song. He's great, whatever. The, the preacher gets up to, to start preaching his message and he says well this morning we're going to talk about sex and Chandler's like I was just like oh no what is she gonna this better go well and this uh, pastor pulls out a prop he pulls out a rose and he says you see this rose smell this rose how beautiful this rose smells you see how pretty this rose is he says, I want, I want you to see, I want you to smell. And so this room's like a thousand people fully takes it down to the end of the aisle and passes it around. He's like, pass that thing around. And he starts, he goes on while they're passing this thing around and he talks about the dangers of sexual immorality. He, but he's doing it not in an appropriate way. He's doing it in a moralistic, brow-beating, fear-mongering kind of way. Have you heard about STDs? You heard what God does to people? who make mistakes here, who go off and do their own thing. He goes on like that for 20 or 30 minutes. He gets to the end of his message and he, and he remembers. He's like, oh yeah, where's my rose? Who's got my rose? So someone you know, walks this thing up to the stage and the petals are all off and this thing's broken from a thousand hands, handling this thing and smelling it. And he says, see, this is my point. All of you are like this rose. And if you just give yourself away, and you're handled and tossed around by all these people sexually and you just, you know, give yourself to whoever. This is what happens to you. Who's going to want this rose? Who would ever want this broken, nasty rose? And Chandler at this point, in his message recounting this story, you can see he's still angry. He says, I was furious. I wanted to go on that stage and strangle that man. And he said, deep within me, I wanted to scream out, Jesus wants that rose. That's who wants the rose. Because that's who he came for. Because all of us are people like that. In this story, you see all the pieces of what we've been talking about tonight coming together. We believe that preacher. I know you do. Because I know your internal dialogue. You share it with me and I have it too. You feel so incompatible with this God because of who you know yourself to actually be and who you know you're not. And you hold him at an arm's length and you think he's like that preacher and we don't come to him. And we also see in this story 
this Jesus rising up in anger to protect you from any narrative, any message that would refute or counter his gospel. This saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Nasty, broken roses. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is who you are. This is what you're actually like. And this is a picture of what we are actually like. Help us to believe. Help music to come back into our hearts and our heads, the music of the gospel. Help us to sing again. Help us to whistle and skip again. And remind us that you're not just wanting that rose to love it, but you're wanting that rose to restore it and to renew it to better beauty than it had before. We ask this in your name, amen.